A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St Matthew, chapter 15, beginning at the 10th verse. Glory, Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Then he called the crowd to him and said to them, Listen and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles. Then the disciples approached and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offence when they heard what you said? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone, they are blind guides of the blind. And if one blind person guides another, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain this parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. This is the Gospel of the Lord. May the words that come from my mouth be inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Would you please be seated? Well, during Lent, uh, we're working through Matthew's Gospel with a particular focus on what Jesus was teaching between the mountains. Much of the best-known teaching of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel is centred around the Sermon on the Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration, and, of course, Calvary. But there's so much depth and richness when we explore what Jesus teaches in the ordinariness, in the journey, and in the confusion of everyday lives. I mentioned, if you were with us uh, last week, that um, I've had to um, think ahead and pick the passages for the last week, this week, and next week. And my two main criteria for picking the passages uh, that we're using on Sundays has been what is going to lead us to the cross, to the tomb, and to the resurrection. But also, I like to be interested in what I'm preaching, so I've also had a, a secondary criteria, which is I wanted to look for passages that I've not preached on before or that maybe I haven't paid enough attention to in the past. And I've actually never preached on this particular part of uh, Matthew's Gospel. It doesn't actually come up in the Sunday reading options uh, for this year. Uh, it comes up in a bracketed section that you can read before, but most of us don't do the extra bits. We just do the shorter versions. Um, and so I was really excited to give it a, a, a crack and, and see what would come. Um, the context of this particular passage comes with an encounter with the scribes and the Pharisees about tradition. And I must admit that I have on maybe one or two occasions had conversations, sometimes rather animated, with people within our church, some of them wear purple, um, about tra tra the traditions of our particular denomination. Might have had a few in the last few days as well. I did not realise, however, that when I picked this passage, how topical it would be this weekend. The catalyst for Jesus' teaching is an accusation by the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus' disciples had not been washing their hands properly. 
clearly they had not seen the many videos circulating at the moment on how to watch expecting everybody as they leave church today to do that little dance as they um, squirt the, um, the Purell gel. Um, you'll hear me say a number of times this year in similar ways, but when we're reading scripture, context matters. Without understanding the world in which these words are spoken and the background behind them, you can come up with a very different conclusion to what was originally intended. And that can be a big problem if we're trying to discern both the truth for our time and the truth for all time. It would be easy to read today's passage and the preceding 10 verses and to think that Jesus is saying that it's okay to eat what you want and not wash your hands. It's actually what's in our hearts and what comes out of our mouths that's the most important. Let me be clear, this is not what this passage is saying. I firmly believe that if we were asking ourselves the question, what would Jesus do in today's COVID-19 world, then we would find Jesus not only alongside the marginalised and the suffering, but also ensuring that he did everything he could do to keep them safe and make them feel safe even if that meant doing a COVID-19 hand-washing dance. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I've learned in recent weeks is that I, up until now, have never washed my hands properly. Singing happy birthday twice? Who's got time for that? I mean, I've always been disgusted by people who leave bathrooms without washing their hands, so I'm no Philistine, but... I'm now making a concerted effort to do it properly every time. Not so that I actually play my part in slowing the spread, but also I build confidence in those around me that I have not only my own best interests at heart, but also theirs. But it's important to know that the hand-washing that is referred to in the preceding passage why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands before they eat. Actually has nothing to do with hygiene. It wasn't even an Old Testament law or requirement. It had been a tradition that was developed by the decentralisation of worship away from the temple. And the intention was to identify who was clean in terms of holiness, not hygiene. As people washed their hands, they would recite a prayer. And there was a sense that all the unclean people and things that they'd come into contact with would be washed away. And they would be seen as not only acceptable to God, 
but seen as holy and set apart, even preferred. After calling out their hypocritical behaviour, Jesus turns away from the scribes and the Pharisees and he turns to the crowd and he begins to teach them what holiness as God intended really looks like. The subheading in my Bible as I read these 10 verses is things that defile. Defile is a word that we don't often use these days. It's not in our common vernacular. It's very strong and it's a very emotive word. Although I wouldn't be surprised if it starts to creep back into our vernacular, particularly if somebody coughs on you. It might be appropriate to say, you have defiled me, sir. It's much better than what I've seen other people do when somebody coughs on them recently. Um, But the word defile comes from this Greek word, koinoi. And it's usually used in the context of a religious ceremony and also means a word that we often hear throughout Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, unclean. In the world of Jesus' time, if you were unclean, you were not included. And while perhaps the purity laws could have at some point had something to do with cleanliness and hygiene, uh, over the years they had been distorted into something that was including people who thought they should be included and excluding everybody else that they thought shouldn't be included. One of the principal ways that a Jewish community would express their inclusion was around the meal table. And if you were to read the middle part of Acts of the Apostles, you'll see how challenging it was for the early church to try and work out a situation where people who've become Christians from a Jewish cultural background could sit at the same meal table with Christians who had become Christians who were from a Gentile background, from a non-Jewish background. And so what they did to solve this problem was they had one of the first ever church parish council meetings. And it's known by scholars as the, Jer- the Jerusalem Council. And they came together and, and argued for and against Uh, what should be done and what was acceptable. In a nutshell, what the requirement was, was to remove every barrier that would prevent Christians sitting down together. And the only thing required was that Gentile Christians would observe the cultural traditions and expectations of Jewish people, which when you think about what they were, they're probably unhelpful behaviour for people following Jesus anyway. And they were to abstain from what had been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what had been strangled and from fornication. So follow those rules. Everybody can sit at the table together, which was a much better outcome than what the um, traditionalists were suggesting that everybody needed to be circumcised. So much less painful In today's teaching, Jesus is telling the crowd and the scribes and the Pharisees, if they would listen, that it's not our superficial actions that make us clean. It's not our external actions that make us holy or include us in the kingdom of God. It is our hearts. 
Jesus adds the point that it's often what comes out of our mouths that reflects what's inside our hearts. The good thing is that all of us have got good hearts, haven't we? It's been nice to understand the historical context, but we don't really need to go any further. If we're good, it's all good. But wait, Jesus gives us a list. Let's have a look at this list. Out of the heart comes evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness and slander. Now I'm not going to ask you to name and shame, but I am going to challenge you to look at that list and give yourself a mark. Which one of those can you cross off as not applying to you? I think most of us hopefully would give ourselves an easy pass. But being around church life my whole life, I'd challenge most churchgoers on the last two particularly um, because um, the... Just get the right slide up. There we go. There's the... No, that's the wrong list. It wasn't there this morning either, the list. That's hard to get good help. So that list is... Evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness and slander. I've seen plenty of false witness and slander in churches, was what I was going to say. Um, it's, this list, though, is not that type of list. And the intention isn't to give us an easy pass mark. These types of representative lists appear throughout the scripture. And when we encounter them, it's tempting for us to say, well, at least I haven't done that one, or I haven't done any of those ones, so I'm good, so it's all good. When I was in theological college, though, I had a prison chaplain come and speak to us about what it was like to do ministry inside prison. And he said something that initially shocked me, but when I reflected on it, it actually opened up both my mind and my heart. He said these words. It wasn't until I could identify the potential murderer in me that I could truly minister to the murderers in prison. We may not be able to check all of those things off our list. And thank God that we can't. But within each one of us is the potential to be so self-focused, so self-absorbed, to be vengeful, to be manipulative, to be sinful, that even if we haven't done anything that's been on those lists, we could create our own separate list full of all the things that we have done wrong, our faults, our failings and our brokenness. But what do we do when things go wrong in our lives when we find out that we've done something that we shouldn't have done? Well, most of us blame. We blame something other than ourselves. Maybe it's the environment we're in at the time. Maybe it's somebody else's fault. Maybe it's something else external. Or maybe the devil. While I do believe that evil is a powerful force in our world, I also know that I blame a whole lot of people and a whole lot of factors 
for the things that are actually my own shortcomings and my own sinfulness. The scribes and the Pharisees believed that the source of sin was external and all that you needed to do was wash it off and that you would be okay with God. Jesus says that the source of our sin is actually inside us and the problem is our heart. And this is what we need to be constantly working on as we strive for holiness. I'm not sure if you've come across this new expression that everybody seems to be saying uh, these days. One of the many, many changes to our vernacular tends to come from an American context and I presume that this one has as well. And that is the expression, oh my heart, normally comes with somebody grasping their heart. I was watching Gogglebox uh, the other day and there was this, um, uh, this great uh, new uh, show uh, which showed uh, um, dating between people who are on the autism spectrum. And, and one of the Gogglebox people um, exclaimed in a loud voice, oh, my heart, as she reflected on how beautiful it seemed to be, as opposed to many of the other dating shows that are on television. While I'm normally sceptical of this type of jargon, particularly the Americanization of our own jargon in Australia, I actually quite like this expression. And I like it because it reminds me that what moves us to respond comes from an internal conviction, from an internal decision, from an emotion that is not generated from within ourselves but it's generated outside of ourselves by others for the purpose of others. We live in undoubtedly interesting times. Each day there's new challenges, new considerations about the practicalities and possibilities as how we might gather together as Christians and call ourselves church. This weekend, our good friends at New Life Church have made the decision to cancel all of their services and instead live stream. At the moment, we are preparing to continue on as we are, but with the real possibility that our small changes this week might turn into more significant changes in the days, weeks, and maybe even months to come. I remember after the Christchurch earthquake when all but one of the local churches were destroyed and a very wise Anglican priest from the only church left usable in the wider Christchurch area, and I, I know about this um, comment because his brother was the priest in the, in the church next door to me uh, in Newcastle. He said these words, I wonder what the church will look like when it has no buildings. Well, today I'm asking myself, and I'm also asking you to consider, I wonder what the church will look like if we cannot gather. I pray that today is a reminder that will give us a sense of hope that the first place that we can start is with our own heart. I pray that those who will see the church in action in the coming days, in the weeks, in the months, 
might exclaim, oh my heart, because we have purposefully and prayerfully considered our own hearts and that what comes out of our mouths and what is represented through our actions is holy because God is at work in and through our hearts. I do pray we will still be able to gather in meaningful ways. And as important as it is for the church to gather, it's even more important for the church to scatter. And my prayer is that the church might be even more visible than it ever has been, even if our numbers this morning are lower than it has been all year.